This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. You've seen the candidate signs sprouting in yards. Somebody's probably knocked on your door asking for your vote. That's right, it is primary season. And one of the most heated races in the March Democratic primary is that of district attorney. Incumbent Margaret Moore is running to retain the post, and she has drawn two challengers who've been quite critical about Moore's leadership of the office. Moore's been drawn into two separate lawsuits revolving around the office's handling of sexual assault cases, and that is going to be the focus of our first segment today. And just a warning for our listeners, we will be discussing the particulars of a a rape case today. The Austin Chronicle's Sarah Marloff has been reporting on this story for many, many months now, and she also wrote this week's cover story about the lawsuits. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So when you're talking about Travis County law enforcement's response to sexual assault, there are a lot of points of entry. Uh, But for our purposes, I think we should probably start with the federal lawsuit that was filed in 2018, which has since become known as the Survivor's Lawsuit. Why don't you set us up? Yeah. Um... I think that the news editor and I, uh, Mike Clark Madison, dubbed it the Survivor's Lawsuit. Um, so. I did not realize no, that, I think that was fair. Okay. It's a much shorter way of saying sexual assault class action lawsuit. Um, sure. That's kind of how we shorthanded it. Um, that but, makes sense. Yeah, right? Um, well, that was filed in, originally filed in June of 2018 with three plaintiffs, who are three women survivors of sexual assault, um, all of them local. And it's against the Travis County District Attorney, the current Travis County District Attorney, Margaret Moore, her predecessor, Rosemary Lemberg. Lemberg, Lemberg, um, And then Austin Police Department, Police Chief Brian Manley, his predecessor, Art Acevedo, the city itself, and the county. Um, And what was the the lawsuit charging them with? Basically, uh, the suit charges... Pretty hefty one. Um, they're claiming that systemic failures within the criminal justice system has led to gender-based inequities for women survivors of rape, um, which has basically violated their constitutional rights, specifically, I think, like the Fifth, the Fourth, and the Fourteenth Amendment rights, um, basically gender inequality. Okay, so um, this happened in June of 2018, and then the lawsuit was amended in August of that year, correct? Yes. Um, in August of 2018, five more survivors uh, signed on as plaintiffs, and including one whose name has stood out a lot recently, um, Emily Bordchart's case. Right, and she, uh, you spoke with her, and she... she becomes a, a large part of, of your feature. Why don't you tell us about Emily's story? Okay. Well, Emily's story is, I think, probably one of the ones that hits, if you sit through and read the 188 pages of the you know amended suit, um, it's definitely one of the ones that stuck with me. Not that they don't all stick with you. All the stories, you know, reported rapes in there um, are pretty intense. And um, Emily claims that she was kidnapped and by several men and raped over the course of 12 hours in a hotel by three different men. Um, and 
Her case was denied for prosecution for a lack of DNA evidence and because the men said it was consensual and supposedly because the injuries weren't severe enough. Um, so I believe she joined the suit somewhere in July of 2018 before it was meant like they got her on board. And that September of 2018, a phone call took place that came to light this past March, um, last March, March 2019, sorry, mm-hmm. um, where Margaret Moore, our current DA, her first assistant, returned a phone call of a family friend of the board shards. And this is ADA Mindy Montford. Mindy Montford. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, Monford returned this phone call of a family friend of theirs, and also, coincidentally, her former sister-in-law. Um, they had been, I think the divorce happened sometime before any of this phone call took place, but they, she knew the name. Uh, Who was also a family friend of Emily Borchardt? Emily Borchardt, okay. yeah. Um, and this woman, Dawn McCracken, wanted to find out why her friend's kid's rape case was declined, and she felt like she wouldn't be able to remember everything, so she recorded the phone call. She did not tell Montford she recorded the call, which Which in the state of Texas is legal. I actually believe it's legal in every state except for California and New York, right? right. Yeah. Um, So uh, in that call, Montford tells McCracken that she has just looked at the police file, um, just reviewed it, and that basically Emily told the cops that she made that the rape wasn't actually rape and it was consensual. I think the word consensual is used about 11 times in the transcript. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the police file, which is part of filing, so it's been reviewed, the word cons- she never says that. Like she's never, she says she did not consent. She says she feared for her life. She tried to run away. Um, she found that fighting back only made it worse. Um, and so it would seem, if you compare them, that Montford made false statements to a third party about someone's rape case. And you can compare the, you can compare them in, in the story then this week. We've got the transcript of both played side by side mm-hmm. uh, which I think does a better job than even me explaining it I, I feel like I don't want to have any kind of bias it just if you you just compare the two just compare the sure. two and see where you come to you know um, and so this came to Emily's attention that the assistant DA who she had my understanding is that she had never had any communication with Montford or or more or anyone else in the DA's office. Correct. They never spoke with her. Okay. So she found out that this ADA communicated with her friend of the family and it seems gave false statements about this woman's rape. Yes. So take us <laughs> to the next point. Um so There was a couple of, like, smaller filings that have happened, but in September, um, Emily Borchardt filed a defamation suit against Moore and Montford and, I believe, the entire office, and maybe the county. I think the county is named in that one as well, Um, basically for saying incorrect things about her and lying that she wasn't raped. Um, And that she had admitted to police that she had... Yes. Yes. Uh, that it was consensual, yes. which Emily maintains, and police records do sure. not indicate that either. That she said any of this yes. was consensual. Yeah. Uh, and then you said also. So, just a reminder: Margaret Moore is currently campaigning uh, to for re-election, um, and 
also part of this second suit, the the defamation suit, Emily says that... So, I believe in the defamation suit, and it links or it points to an October candidate forum where Moore spoke about Emily's case and basically said, like, all of our, the claims are unfounded against her office. We didn't do anything wrong. According to Emily's suit. According to Emily's right. suit. Um, Neither one of us was at that. No, no, I did right. not attend that. Um, though Moore has stood by the claims. I actually printed out the response she sent media after the call came to light. Um, that, and she wrote that she has reviewed the transcript and she believes the allegations of impropriety are unfounded. Um, and she stood by that. She told me in our interview that she disagrees with my assessment and stands by her claims. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and stands by her ADA, and Mindy who will Montford. maintain yes. first assistant title if she is reelected. Right. Moore, yeah. Moore has pledged that, that she will retain Montford. Yeah. Yes. Um, and because of these, because it, they are still talking about it and because they're allegedly bringing it up on the campaign trail um, as part of the defamation suit, Emily has also filed a request for a temporary restraining order to keep more Monford or anyone kind of doing their bidding from talking about her rape or mm-hmm. saying at any point that what she experienced was consensual. Right. So. I mean, and just also, I, I think it it's, bears noting that at the time of her uh, alleged rape, Emily was, I think she was a senior at UT. Yep, she was um, 21. Yeah, she was 21. She's home now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said she suffers from PTSD. Yeah, it's been, it's, if the way everyone's painting it is, it's been a pretty rough ride for her. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this is... Um, not not all of your reporting. This is part of a of a larger story that you've been reporting on for a while now um, with the the lawsuits, but also what some have accused um, more in the DA's office of having a a problematic approach to both you know their their prosecution or lack of prosecution of of sexual assault cases, and also maybe a, a lack of support for survivors. Why don't you why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um... So there's a lot of prosecuting rape is very hard. Um, and I, there's a piece in the article that, like, everyone agrees it's hard. It's hard to fight a he said, she said claim. Um, but sometimes it feels like even that threshold isn't being tested. Um, another person running in a different race in the sheriff's race once told me who was a co-chair of a task force in town that works to basically – better the city and county's response to sexual assault and survivors um, said that you will never, you know, we like to blame juries and say like, well, juries don't like these cases. Juries don't understand these cases. And that might be very true, but without ever taking these cases, without trying more cases, we're never going to educate jurors on the realities of rape. And most rape is that gray area rape where it's someone you know, it's a date rape, it's uh, she was drunk, and those are it's gray area. It's not a weapon. It's not a kidnapping. It's not a stranger. And those ones are easier to prosecute. Mm-hmm. Um, did I answer the question? I think so. Yes. <laughs> and this is uh, you just mentioned the this is the sexual assault response. sexual assault resource and response team. Right, and that that also feeds into this story. 
um, in the sense that that has been a, a, a huge player in sort of Travis County trying to improve its response to sexual assault. But there's trouble there, too. Yeah. Um, so they're called the SART for short. And I think it's, you know, they're a group that people don't really know about because we don't really like talking about sexual assault. Um, but they've been around since 1992. They've, I mean, Travis County Sheriff's Sheriff's Office, the DA's office, APD, um, Safe Place, all of the Safe Alliance, um, all of the different advocates groups have all sat at this table. There is legal resources at the table. Basically, anyone who ever gets a call to help deal with a rape case is at the table of the SART. Um, in 2017, after Let's go back to being like there was a time where there was a backlog of close to a thousand, maybe over a thousand rape kits at, that APD hadn't tested. Um, and at one point, they found a mold like substance growing on 849 of them. Mm -hmm. This would be a good place to point out that this is not just a problem at the DA's office. Exactly. Yes. Um, it does stem at outside of it. And it goes back before Moore or Manley were in charge. Mm -hmm. um, but some some of the stuff that happened with the mold, there was an angry letter sent from the SART being like, we need to know more. Um, they Which was seen as a sort of escalation. Yep. Okay. And it's a heated letter for sure. Um, but Moore left the SART at that point. Um, she has said a couple of times in varying things she's tried to say that the lawsuit is what left made her leave the SART but the lawsuit was filed a year after the mold incident and she stopped attending mm -hmm. then um to my to my notes and what she had told me a year ago um but so it's part of a, a, a broader picture of some people in the in the advocacy community feeling as if she's just Walk not coming away. to the table. Yeah, yeah. she has walked, literally walked away from the table when it comes to these issues. Yes. And it's worth saying she has started her own task force mm -hmm. um, that also looks at how the responses to sexual assault in Travis County. Um, and But that is all law enforcement and it all happens behind closed doors in a not the concern from advocates is that there aren't enough people at the table and there's not enough sharing of information and therefore advocates who aren't at the table safe is but the other advocates can't do their work as well without having collaboration from the DA's office so so that pretty much brings us up to today and I guess what's happening today is Moore is running for re-election and she is drawn uh, two candidates, one who has explicitly said that she got into the race because of this issue, and then the other candidate says that was certainly a, a, a determining factor. factor. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the other two candidates? Yeah. Um, Jose Garza is... Executive Director of Workers' Defense Project. Yes. Yes. Um, and he's the one who calls it a factor, and mm -hmm. he's definitely like working towards addressing this. He's talked about like if... He, he has said the number one problem or the problem began when Moore left the SART. Um, he would like to go back to the SART if he wins. Um, and I and he's, yeah. you know, has been meeting with advocates from what I've heard. Um, and then there's Erin Martinson, who has spent her whole adult career, to my knowledge, working with victims kind of on a case by case basis as an attorney, helping make sure that their rights are met. Um, 
which their victims have rights in under the law, which I think I forget about. So um, Aaron has always done that. Um, and she was basically she jumped into the race because a whole bunch of advocates were like, we need someone to fight. Um, but I she has said to me that she doesn't consider herself a politician. So. Mm. Well, and I think Ed Martinson is the first person you quote in, in this week's story. And I think uh, it's the, the first question you pose is, you know, isn't it crazy, basically, that sexual assault is is a defining issue in an election campaign? And it's 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 about time. Yeah. Yeah. It's about time. Yeah. And it's unheard of, I think. Absolutely. So, well, we're going to keep tracking this. Thanks so much for coming in, Sarah. I, I do want our, our regular listeners to know uh, that this is Sarah's last time in the studio with us because she's abandoning us for, <laughs> she's going back to DC uh, with her wife and we're gonna miss her so much, but she's pledged to keep tracking these stories for us and we know that we'll hear more from her soon. So thank you so much, Sarah, for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Joining me for the second half of the program is Karan Spearman, who is here to talk about an event that took place last week, the Growing Your Roots African American Genealogy Conference. Karan, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So this was the first time ever uh, that this that this thing happened. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, who who hosted it? Who came up with the idea and what your experiences were like? Um, who? I'll start with the, the who. Uh, Kimberly Keaton, uh, the Austin History Center's uh, African-American um, history archivist. Um, she wanted to put it on. I guess it kind of started out of uh, another person's wanting to uh, give some material over to the History Center. And that person wanted it to be kind of a small event. She kind of took that idea, uh, took it to her, to her boss, and they sort of escal- it kind of escalated into mm-hmm. this much bigger thing. Um, and I guess partly the, the impetus was, you know, out of the gentrification, out of a lot of different things that are happening here in Austin, um, where do you locate roots where you are ba- being basically supplanted out of them? Um, so it came out of that sort of an idea, um, but also just kind of to provide an awareness that the history is actually there and is available. And, um, yeah, it was put on uh, by the city, by the History Center. Um, and the, the Austin Public Library. At the Austin Public Library, mm-hmm. also at the Carver uh, Library on the east side, um, and a few other locations. So they had different panels, um, all related to genealogy and just uh, location-based uh, events uh, around Austin. So what was the what was the programming like? Can you talk about your experience? Um, my I went to interesting. I'm not from Austin, so that's very important. <laughs> I should put that up front. And so it was very interesting to me for them to have me there. I guess as somebody who's kind of starting to archive a lot of Austin's Black history, um, one person at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I was invited to a panel uh, related to Austin's like Black family legacy. Um, so they had different people there that were, um, mostly women, which is uh, striking to me. Um, Tisha, uh, Christopher was the person, actually the person that kind of brought, uh, Kimberly, the material that she wanted to have submitted. 
um, she was also there. And so it was interesting to hear her story, uh, the stories of uh, Voma Overton Jr., who is uh, the son of uh, Senior, who was a uh, NAACP president here for about 20 years, uh, I think from the late from the 60s into the early 80s. Um, my experience is kind of it was weird as kind of an interloper um listening to these people's stories. Well, what do you mean by interloper? Well, because, is that because I'm not, you're not an Austinite. Yeah, I'm not an Austinite. Mm. Um and so it was very interesting. I was by far the youngest person there. Do you think say. that was specific to that panel or was that your impression? I, I throughout think that the... was sort of my I I would say if the the panel before uh, did have some younger people, but I think on this particular family, what what was kind of interesting to me is that they were all older people. Um, there weren't a lot of younger people in the crowd, mm-hmm. so it, it's kind of a generation talking to each other. I mean that right? that kind of makes sense to me, just because I feel like it's the older you get that you start to realize like that. That, you know, remembering your roots is important because you're starting to deal with mortality in your life. Somebody's got to be preserving these stories. And right. We have to sort of shake the younger people to. And so there were some my age, slightly maybe older than I. Um, so it, that was kind of interesting that they were kind of speaking at some point to the young to the younger people that weren't actually present. So it was <laughs> it was this weird thing going on. But. But you um, were there as a journalist I was there. to, to I was there chronicle to catch, it. I was to, there. Exactly. So to that end, I think uh, I, I, I listened. I, I spent most of the time listening. A lot of listening. Um, I think I wrote in, into the piece uh, this week that uh, specifically with Mr. Overton, whose uh, comments kind of hit me the, the most, it, it was just this sort of, and I heard it with the other women as well, but there's a sort of residual anger mm-hmm. um, that he hasn't quite been able to let go of because it has, it's been completely unresolved. Um, and it's, talk about what that, that anger is exactly. So we're talking about um, African-American displacement. We're talking about the gentrification problem that we have here um, in Austin. Um, we're talking about just everything re- related to... Um, the urban renewal plans, which were was a kind of precursor to like gentrification, a lot of these things. Um, and you were talking about, you know, historically of, of certain services being denied in, right. in certain neighborhoods. Because, you know, let's say Clark's, I, I live in Clarksville. This, there was a time where um, before they were kind of, you know, I wouldn't say eased out because they weren't eased out, but they were asked very unnicely, let's say, <laughs> to leave Clarksville. And when they did not, services were cut off. We're, we're talking about maybe into the early 70s in which you still had like dirt roads in Clarksville. They were not paving roads. Mm-hmm. They were not picking up trash. Wow. They were cutting off water. You know, it was different things. It was, it was intermittent. It would be on and then off and on and then off. Um, so it's it's things like that that uh, they haven't been able to, uh, that haven't been rectified, that haven't been, they haven't gotten any sort of restitution for it. I mean, how do you, how, what would you do to set that up? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is going to be, you know, for him, I mean, it, it, I felt it. I was two seats down from him and I could feel this. Um, it was palpable. Like you could feel mm-hmm. it. He was just really, he, he literally said it. I'm still angry. Mm-hmm. And he said it in this kind of very slow tone that was like, I'm st- like, you can feel a burn in him. 
we're talking about now, this happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Right. A lot of these things or longer, you know. Um, so I think what I kind of walked away with um, in listening to their stories and them reconnecting um, is a couple of things. A, just the resolution of whatever the, the anger, the resolution of um, uh, the the gentrification problem. Is there actually even a solution to that? And I guess to the, to the thing with the genealogy, I guess that's the next best thing, but it, you're connecting with people, but you can't connect no, because you no longer can connect with place. Wow. Yeah. Right. So that's the, that's sort of what you have to do. And then the last thing is the fact that even though the event was held on city grounds in various places, it is also the city that is also sort of causing a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the strife. And so it becomes a thing to where, and of course a black woman put this, uh, Miss Keaton put this together. So it's like black people having to resolve their own issues we can do it. We'll allow you to do it on city grounds, but we're actually not going to resolve the issues that are creating a situation where you needed to v- create this event at all. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Um, and I think you can feel that tension in your piece of this sort of like, yes. wow, this is an incredible site and space that we're all sharing together. And then, well, actually, I mean, you dropped the reparations word and you right. know, that and that is a word that I think makes a lot of people sort of, you know, tense their body. And, and that's OK. Yeah. That's OK. It we're going okay. we're to we're get there. We're, that's all right. Um, but I, I think that's something that should be talked about. It's 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 something I think we're prepared to talk about more than we have been. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't, I'm not going to pretend I have any sort of answers for the people that were on the panel, the people listening to this. I I don't, I don't know any, any of the answers, but I think that um, if we're talking about a city, um, we city building, I think we need to talk also about equity within that city building, not just equality when the city build, but equity, and what that means is to rest- restore the equity. Um, and these and these people pay taxes too. And one of the women were saying, "Oh, it's weird to like leave your house and then come back and have a for sale sign, and you're not selling your house, but somebody has put a for sale sign in front of your house." All right. So it's little things like that that have to be fixed. Um, and the city has a lot to do with that. And mm-hmm. are we going to be an equitable? anti-racist city like in our foundations or are we just kind of talking about it and having committees and doing these little things that we do all these big committees that we're doing and not and it's not in the core framework of our city building here Mm -hmm. i mean the conference sounds provocative in the best way possible if it's got if it's got people asking these questions have you any indicator if this is going to happen again i talked to her um She's tired, <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I feel like it could happen again. I feel like it should happen again. I think it should even be bigger. It should be even bigger and broader, you know, uh, VR stuff, you know, all these. I think it, it could be and should be much bigger than wow. it actually is. I think the city should be much. I think there's this is an entry point in which the city can be much more involved. Like if they're very serious about these things and having all these committees and 
and equitable everything, then this is a, an entry point, at least one of many ways they could go simultaneously to sort of uh, rectify and uh, provide restitution, I guess, in a way. Well, let's hope that the, the city is listening because that sounds like a great idea. Uh, I hope so. Kron, thank you so much for coming in. It's no always problem. a pleasure. Of course. And that is our show this week. I want to say thanks again to my guests, both Karan Spearman and also Sarah Marloff. Thanks go also to engineer Evan Hearn and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. Finally, thanks to you listeners, and we will see you again next time for the Austin Chronicle Show.